did you hear that voice in the background while I was finishing up weather going into traffic? Oh, I'm so excited, believe it or not. Um, my next guest is possibly one of my all-time favorite guests of my time doing Aww. afternoons, but um, it is he is my first guest, my first in-studio guest in two and a half years. I can't believe that. Ted Barris, incredible author. You know, book number 20 we're going to talk about. Welcome back to Alberta. It's a pleasure to be here, almost. I almost didn't make it yesterday <laughs> through the storm, but, but I did. If you heard in the background, Ted, Ted was saying, be careful if you're driving out to Camrose because <laughs> you almost didn't make it. You were doing, uh, you were delivering uh, a presentation on your latest book last night at the theater. Bailey, the Bailey Theater. What a gorgeous theater. Gosh, it's fun. Do you know how many people showed up last night through the storm and the blizzard? And how the, many? You know, it was about 125, 140 nice. people. And I figured if they're going to make it, some guys drove in from Pinoca. Mm -hmm. If they're going to do that, I better be there. <laughs> so I just about didn't get there because it was a truck straddling the road and I had to find another way around. I followed a propane truck because I figured he knew the way and I got there. <laughs> Ted Barris, of course, is, um, I, I have no problem saying, you know, Canada's, you know, preeminent military author, 20 books um, covering you name it, he's done it when it comes to uh, the military, the Canadian forces, the history. And the latest book is titled Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory. And I know when you got in touch with me, you said, Jay, you know, you're thinking, what does the Battle of the Atlantic have to do with the prairies and I know in the back of my head that it actually has a lot to do because we had a lot of folks from out here mm -hmm. that signed up and and went and served and so there is a real tie absolutely and and people say okay landlocked prairies how did they become so so central to the Royal Canadian Navy and the Merchant Navy mm -hmm. and I did I, I this is something that I started studying as early as the mid 1970s well wow. one of the first guys I talked to was a Navy guy he was my sister-in-law's father-in-law, a guy named H.T. Doig, mm -hmm. Harold, and I interviewed him in 1976, one of the first veterans who consented to an interview, and he and his younger brother George joined up in 1940, both of them in the Royal Canadian mm -hmm. Navy, and I said to him at one point, what the heck were two guys from Winnipeg, <laughs> then later living in yeah. Saskatoon, doing in the Royal Canadian, in the middle of the North Atlantic? He said, well, we can understand when there's no horizon out there on the, on the prairie. We can understand if there's no buildings, no mountains, yeah. no trees. We're we're used to a seamless or a blended sky and and uh, you know ground mm -hmm. surface. We got it when it came to the ocean. All you had to do is get over the, the seasickness, mm -hmm. which they did. And that guy named Bill Bent. Uh, he I got sources from material at the um, military museums in Calgary on his memoirs. He said, all the boys from Saskatoon joined up, go to the Navy, because we figured we could deal with the space. <laughs> and it's so true. Interesting. Yeah. One of my, one of my, um, one of, I called him my pal. His name was Cliff Powers. And uh, Cliff is one of my favorite veterans who passed right around this time a, a few years back but cliff led the provincial remembrance day service the parade at the remembrance day service at the butter dome for many many years but cliff was uh in the navy and was on a corvette that was torpedoed in the atlantic and survived and went on for years living here he's one of my favorite people but i can remember reading about his story his stories in laughing in the face of danger yes that book mm -hmm. and um um, and he did. He always had a smile on his face, yeah. and always, uh, always there with a great big kiss whenever he saw me. Aww. But when you take a look at at some of these stories, and 
And the battle itself, we often think of battles and we think of, you know, for example, Vimy, four days, or yep. we think of Dieppe, yeah, how many days was One. that, or Juno, yep. right? One. And the Battle of the Atlantic, 2,074 days, the entire run of the war. Exactly. From the sinking of the Athenia on the first day of the war when the British declared war on Germany on September 3rd, 1939 right through until Carl Dunitz, who was the chief of the, the, the rear admiral of the, the U-boat Waffa, uh, tells the U-boats to surrender in the first week of May 1945, 2,074 days. But you know what, Jalen, the thing that, that struck me, and I, I, writers of history are so seduced by battles, mm. you know, like you just dive in because mm -hmm. it's critical, it's, mm. it's urgent, it's deathly, it's victory, it's defeat, and it's people in conflict. About six months into the writing process, something struck me. I got a letter from a woman in eastern Ontario, and she had enclosed a letter, a copy of one, that was written by her aunt, a woman mm. named Alex Mascheter, on the very first day of the war in Britain. She was a Canadian from Ontario, living in Britain, married there, had a, an infant son in 1939. On September the 3rd, she realizes the war is upon them, and she talks about the blackout curtains mm. and the rationing. And then it hit me. The Battle of the Atlantic is not about the battle. It's about keeping England alive. Mm -hmm. Because without the supply line, which was from North America to Britain and back, and that constant supply of food and fuel and staples and all the things that w were needed in Britain, because Britain is always an importing nation, mm -hmm. has always been that way. Without that, Churchill would have been directing the British war from Ottawa. Mm -hmm because mm -hmm. they would have lost in the first year of the war if they'd invaded, the yeah. Germans invaded. But because of that supply line, that continuous flow of, of goods, 90,000 tons of goods supplied to Britain every single day of the war, the Merchant Navy did, escorted by the Royal Canadian Navy. And it's a story that's never been told. And when you take a look at how small the Canadian Navy was at the start... And, and you know how many ships we had? 13? Exactly. Good Good for you. You read it. <laughs> Devil you. <laughs> but uh, five years later, how, what did it look like at the end? 400 fighting ships, uh, hundreds and hundreds of merchant ships, uh, and the fourth largest navy on the planet. You touched on it. And you talk the, the, the human factor of this. That's how you have to tell this story because right? you can't do it. Just back and forth. You can't do every one of the 2,074 days. That's impossible. So if we hadn't have been as successful as we were, what would have that looked like? Well, we almost lost it. Mm -hmm. In 1942, I don't think I can answer that question, but in 1942, we came that close to losing the Battle of the Atlantic because the Canadians were responsible for the North Atlantic, which was referred to as the Black Gap. If you can imagine in your head, on one side of the map, there's North America to the left, on the north side of it is Iceland, and mm -hmm. then there's the UK to the right. And the aircraft that could come out and deliver air coverage, drive the U-boats down, because the U-boats had to dash or crash dive away from the, the Air Force aircraft, the, the Hudsons and the Cansos and the PBYs and the Catalinas and all those. They could only come out so far, but right in the middle of the North Atlantic was this big black gap where the U-boats marauded mm. all of the convoys. And at the end of 1942, the Canadians had sustained 80% of the losses. We're wow. talking about millions of tons of freight gone to the bottom despite the best efforts of the Canadians. And Churchill calls Mackenzie King and says the Canadians are off the North Atlantic. 
this is it's just too much to bear. We need you to come to England, your 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 crews and your ships to be refitted because the Canadians didn't have nearly the equipment, the the arsenal of of weaponry or the detection devices that the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy had. So they get they go to England and for the refit. Then the the statistics get even worse in the first month of 1943. The Canadians go to the Mediterranean to help launch Operation Torch into North Africa. Guess what the Americans and the Canadians, well, mostly the Canadians do in the Mediterranean in mm. January 1943? They knock out three U-boats in a month. Why? Because it's not the middle of the North Atlantic, it's the Mediterranean, and, and Louis Lord Batten sees them mm. and uh, gives them credit for these victories in the Mediterranean, calls them a lovely bunch of young bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Canadians go back to the North Atlantic three months later, the U-boat wolf packs are broken. We came that close. Wow. Ted Barris joining me in studio this afternoon. Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory is the uh, latest book uh, by Ted, his 20th. He calls it his pandemic, his pandemic book. And uh, Ted is speaking tomorrow night at Festival Place. We're going to get to that in just a second. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be on one of those ships knowing that those u-boats were out there and not like to me it's more terrifying than and maybe that's wrong to say just just coming to my head than being on land i know yeah. there's something about that yeah you've got no refuge um there's nowhere to go that's it. and it's dark mm -hmm. because the u-boats were packing at night <laughs> And or, or attacking at night, um, they had all kinds of advantages on the surface. And this is what this is what Carl Dunitz did. He manufactured the strategy, the tactics to defeat the convoys, and nearly did. One um, in the First World War, the U-boats had been off on lone wolf attacks and would expend all their torpedoes on a convoy and then disappear. And if they hit them, fine. Dunitz said, No, 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 no. One U-boat spots a convoy. You don't fire. You shadow. You call the, all the, the others mm. in, and they would come from 100 miles away and create a pack. And then they would use to advantage the speed on the surface that they didn't have when they were submerged, mm -hmm. the maneuverability they had on the surface, which they, which they wouldn't have under the water. The Allies had a very primitive form of sonar called ASDEC, but, and it would do really well if the U-boat was submerged, could ping off mm -hmm. the U-boat if it was submerged. On the surface, it couldn't see mm. it. So the U-boats are invisible. They're maneuverable, they're fast, and then he says is the final tactic, you attack at night. And so from the darkness out yeah. there, these poor convoys were absolutely butchered in the first three years of the war by the U-boat packs. Ted Barris joining me in studio. Just so thrilled Hooray. to have someone sitting across from me for the first time in two and a half years and for it to be you. Thank you. Uh, just uh, pretty amazing. Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory is Ted's latest book, his 20th book. Although you've you've done more than twenty. No, twenty books. This twenty yeah, complete. Yeah. You've got you're working on the next one. I am. All right. Yeah. Can't wait. Um, tomorrow night at Festival Place, you and David O'Keefe, another military historian, um, doing a presentation. Tell me about it. Well, David is a brilliant, brilliant historian. I mean, he blew the lid off the Dieppe story mm -hmm. because he discovered that while all that hell was happening on the beach and on the cliffs, there was a secret operation to try to pinch an Enigma machine. And he's going to tell that story tomorrow awesome. night and why and how it was all pulled off and why that was a turning point in the Second World War, as I'm going to try to describe why the Battle of the Atlantic was a turning point, much as I was describing before we went to break. And that turning point in, in 42 was really the magic key, because once the Canadians had the capability with the w correct weaponry and detection devices and so on, they could help 
uh, defend the convoys. But now the other ingredient was the intelligence ingredient. Mm -hmm. Here's where David and I are on the same path because David's into this Enigma stuff. And I managed to find a woman who worked with Alan Turing at Bletchley. She was a Canadian. Really? Yeah. You think Imitation Game was all about the women in yeah, with Turing yeah. were all British. Uh-uh. And this is a bit of a sneak preview for tomorrow night. Um, woman was named Nana Dare. She was from BC, and she was born in, in Britain, raised in Ontario, went back to Britain when the war breaks. So she can't find a job or get into the military anywhere, and she's told she should go to an interview at Milton Keynes, a mm. place called Bletchley Park. She goes to this interview, <laughs> and she meets a guy named Alistair Denniston, who says, Welcome, we're looking for the cream of great minds. And she thinks, oh, my God, all I've got is a high school education. She said, he says, no, 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 we'll assess you. What will I have to do, she says. Well, you'll have to sign the Secrets Act, work mm -hmm. shifts. Um, and he says, I'll give you some time. And she says, oh, that would be nice. And she, he says, you've got five minutes. She joins and she becomes one of the 10,000 men and women, mostly women, who work at Bletchley Park decoding Enigma with Alan Turing in the Kriegsmarine section, the, the section that's decoding Enigma for the warfare on the sea. And so with their help, they were able to steer the convoys away from the U-boats. Sometimes it worked because the, the Enigma decoding yeah. was working really, really well. Other times it went dark when the Germans shifted from a three-wheeled Enigma to a four-wheeled mm -hmm. Enigma, which David will describe tomorrow night. Brilliant guy. Um, you'll get a strong sense of how these moments were so critical and how Canadians played a key role. There's a few tickets left uh, oh, uh, yeah. for tomorrow night, so you can go online Squeeze at Festival in. Place. Squeeze in. Go see David O'Keefe, Ted Barris, two of my favorite... Uh, uh, historians, well, the most favorite sitting right in front of me this afternoon. Best He's more handsome than I am. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know what? I've known him for a while, too, but uh, I always enjoy our time. Ted, Thanks. so great to see you again. Pleasure. Can't wait to talk to you again. Best of luck tomorrow night, not that you need it. Thank you. All right, Ted Barris joining me in studio this afternoon. Okay, the Royal Canadian Navy, along with other branches of the Canadian Armed Forces, will be honoured at a special event this weekend.